Business Women Rock, Episode 20. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock Podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with me today to listen to our guest, Shraddha Agarwal, who's the founder of Context Media. Before we get there, I have a handful of super cool announcements to give to you. The first is that I want to give you a little gift. So you've been listening for weeks now. You've been hearing all these great stories from these just rock star business women, and the majority of them have all recommended really great business books. Well, I want to give you your choice of any of those books for free. All you have to do is go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash give it to me and go claim your free audiobook from Audible. The second piece of big news is that today is Business Women Wednesday, which means that it's time to put the spotlight on an incredible businesswoman who's part of the Business Women Rock community. So today, a big shout out goes to Sarah Nana Yaboa. Sarah is a senior staff nurse at Ridge Hospital, and she's the CEO of Sanji Nursing Services which is an organization that provides a lot of health education and promotion and prevention programs and medical screening programs to kids and adults in schools and churches and in all sorts of organizations. Sarah is also a social entrepreneur and has spent a lot of time renovating and painting and just giving a lot of support to a lot of the places in rural Ghana. You can find out more about Sarah and her business journey at bizwomenrock.com. She is incredible. Sarah, we salute you. Congratulations to you. Now on with the show. My guest today is Shraddha Agarwal, who's the founder of Context Media. Now, Context Media is a very unique mass media education platform that she's able to utilize and deploy in physicians' offices all across the nation that reaches a million people every single month. The business that this woman has created is fantastic, and you're really going to love her story because not only is she very super business savvy, but she is also very giving to the business community. She's an investor herself, and she just overflows with passion for not only what she does, but who she's able to serve. So turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Shraddha, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me, Katie. I am so excited to talk to you today and to be able to share your story with our listeners because you have been an entrepreneur for a long, long time in your life, ever since you were a little girl, and you have built up this entrepreneurial story and this business story so much so that you have you know, created this company, Context Media, and are doing amazing things with it. And so I really want to share how your unique story is so, so awesome and so full of so many great lessons. So let's really start at the beginning. How did you even get started as an entrepreneur? You know, um, it's easy to now trace back into where entrepreneurship started. But to be honest, I didn't know the word or even how to spell the word until very recently. But when I trace back into some of the early initiatives I had in my life and to my upbringing, there were times where, and I think this really goes to kind of credit to my parents, where 
they would see people around them complain about something. And they said, well, if you're going to complain about it, do something about it. And that's how they raised my brother and me. And they really taught us to solve problems and understand what the um, sort of audience and marketplace around us needs. And instead of just pointing to a problem, let's point to a solution. And that's how I learned to be entrepreneurial. The first thing I can remember is in fourth grade, I was an avid reader, and I had read through my library of books, I read through my dad's library of books, and needed more books. My most natural resource would have been my parents to say, hey, can you guys give me more allowance so I can go buy more books? And my parents thought that was not something they wanted to do at that age. They thought I was getting paid enough allowance and did not want to up it, or maybe they thought I was reading too much, I don't know. But... Um, they said no, and so I had to be resourceful, and I had a problem at hand. I needed more books, and I needed to find my own solution for it. So I looked at the resources I had, which was this library of books that my dad and I had, and um, sort of the marketplace became my fears in school. I started smuggling his books out, taking them in my backpack to school, and started marketing these stories to my friends. And I was reading a lot about astrophysics and science and astronomy at the time, so I would say, did you guys know that the stars don't twinkle outside of our own atmosphere? And people would get very excited and ask me why. And I would say, to find out more, you can borrow this book for this many pesos for this many days and read all about it. So I was getting <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you knew that you knew great marketing even in fourth grade. <laughs> so I knew how to get their curiosity peaked and then how to sell those books and uh, well rent them out. So that was the first thing I can point back to. And you know, in that particular example, my class teacher found out and she wasn't very happy about it for two reasons, I think. One was because she didn't think I should be taking money from my classmates. If I wanted them to read books, I should be giving it out to them for free and let them read it. But the whole point of this was the win-win situation of this was they get to read more books and more interesting books and I get to make money while doing it so I could keep buying more books, read them myself and add them to the library for my friends. And uh, I think the second reason was because the books that I was reading were a lot more interesting than our textbooks in school. And I think we were starting to not be as responsive to homework assignments and she was not very happy about the distractions. But uh, those were some great books that I read, the ones that I chose to read and kind of learned a lot of things that I still remember. So that was the first time. And what I learned from that is, you know, there'll always be people who say no, and there'll always be people who are not happy. And it's important to understand why they're not happy about what you're doing and try to see how you can create a win-win situation for all the stakeholders involved. And we did eventually start a library in school, and class teacher was happy, all teachers were happy. But I think it's really important to know your audience well and know all the naysayers along the way. Sometimes you want to ignore the naysayers because there will always be some of those people, and sometimes you just want to address those concerns. So my image way of addressing it was that the book club became an underground secret book club, and um, I ignored our class teacher complaining about it, but eventually we found a better solution. That's great. I love that story. Very vivid. Thank you very much. Now, after that, after fourth grade, what were some of your other business adventures that you participated in? They were more initiatives than adventures. In eighth grade, we were learning science, and we were learning about these experiments and reading about it in the textbooks. And I just got very bored reading about the experiments, and we were reading about which chemicals react in what ways and, you know, how electricity is conducted. I wanted to go see it happen, and I wanted volcanoes bursting, and I wanted electricity to have, um, you know, see how it's conducted through the um, wiring structure. 
And so my parents had returned from a trip to the United States and bought me a dollhouse and, you know, they expect, and bought my brother a racetrack that he can build into different shapes and race cars on it. And after I built the dollhouse once, twice, I got bored because there's only one configuration. I knew the instructions and I didn't have much more to do with it. So I was, of course, playing with my brother's racetrack, but he got tired of me playing with it more than he did. Eventually, what I did was actually wired my dollhouse. So in eighth grade, when we had just learned about electricity being conducted and two-way circuits, I wanted to demonstrate a two-way circuit. So I went and bought the parts, and I had a three-floor, three-story dollhouse, and um, just created a two-way circuit in there. So the dolls walking in from the first floor up to the bedroom, which was on the second floor, didn't have to walk in the dark. They could turn the light on in the basement and then walk up the stairs and turn the light off, conserving electricity while walking with a well-lit staircase. And so that was um, something that it then converted into a science club in school, and I had other friends who similarly were very anxious to get their hands dirty and actually see things happen live and learn from mistakes rather than learn from the sort of perfect heterosperibus scenario in a textbook. And we had to lobby our school principal and you got come through hurdles, but it eventually worked out and the science club is still going. Now, let that lead us up to just before you launch Context Media. Give us a little bit of an insight as to what had happened sort of in your adult professional life that really prepared you into launching this company. Sure. You know, there were two things. So we launched the company while I was in college. So there were two things that happened. One was internships and made me realize that because of the upbringing I had had and the experiences growing up, when I had an idea, when I had a solution, I wanted to go implement it. And through internships, and there were great organizations doing very well, but there was a structure, there was a pace at which things were done. And I was too restless to really follow either that structure or the pace. So I knew what I didn't want. Simultaneously on campus, we had started a business organization that focused on experiential learning, just sort of the theme that my life had had previously as well. And part of that was a business magazine called North Fashion Business Review. And we were writing an article about digital signage, the technology that powers taxi cab screens and mall screens, high-rise elevators, and technology that was able to send information to multiple locations from one central location. So we thought that the technology was really powerful, and those two experiences together, starting things on campus and being around a team of people that appreciated the entrepreneurial way of thinking, and also having internships in environments that were entrepreneurial for the industries they were in, yet they had structure and a pace that was not did not align with mine. And so those two trends simultaneously led to sort of the birth of CM, Context Media. Now take us into that. How did you actually get the idea for Context Media? And what was the plan back then? You know, we grew up, and when I say me, uh, when I say we, I mean co-founders and me. We had each grown up with family members living with a chronic condition. And we had spent a lot of time in doctors' waiting areas. We had seen our loved ones struggle with understanding what types of lifestyle changes can impact their condition. Um, my case particularly was my grandparents living with diabetes, and I lost three of my four grandparents early because of diabetes complications, which if they had been better educated and better motivated, could have possibly elongated their lives by a few more years. And so having grown up around that, I had seen the importance of information delivered by the right person 
in the right way and at the right time. The power of being open and being receptive to that message was so important. Me saying something to my grandmother at dinner table asking her to skip dessert was not as powerful as her doctor saying, you need to be cutting down on desserts from maybe 10 days a month to eight days a month, which is a much more doable target. And so there's a way, there's a place, there's a delivery message that resonates with people and makes it relevant, makes it personal. And we had had an interest in experiential um, media, experiential learning throughout our individual backgrounds as well. So our knowledge of the digital signage technology and the power of bringing messages at the right time and place combined with personal experiences brought the nexus of Context Media's birth. So for our listeners, can you give us a walkthrough of exactly what Context Media is and what that kind of education uh, through that mass communication you are explaining? Can you give us kind of an idea of what all that is? Sure. So walking into a doctor's office, we install a screen in the waiting area that plays videos targeted to the conditions and demographic of that particular doctor's office's patients. So that's one way. The second way is we have tablets in the exam room. So once a nurse comes and does vitals and leaves, saying the doctor will be with you shortly, usually that wait is another 10 to 15 minutes before the doctor comes in. The tablet helps us engage each patient in understanding more about their condition and care around the condition. And third, we work with EMR systems, electronic medical record systems, to send pre-appointment reminders along with education and preparation of the upcoming visit, as well as a summary of the visit at the end so that the conversation between the patient and physician can really focus on the live conversation instead of taking notes, instead of repeating things. And we take care of making sure that the key communication is recapped into an email and text message that's followed up with the patient after the visit so that they can digest all that information and take action on that information. So you're really getting health-conscious information in front of the patient who really that's the point at which you think that they're most liable to listen because they're in the doctor's office. They're kind of taking things seriously and they need to be listening to those messages. So you now have this information about how you want to deliver. How, what did it actually take to launch the company? Like what pieces did you really have to put together to create this technology, to create all the right messaging, to get all of the correct media in place and to get into the doctor's offices? That's a huge question I know, but can you explain what it really took to kind of bring all those pieces together and what pieces you had to have in order to launch? Sure. So we are a sales and distribution company before we are a product company. And what I mean by that is, you know, companies can start with a product and then find a marketplace or companies can start with finding a marketplace and then build the right product. And we went the latter route. For us, it was important. We saw the problem and we wanted to find a solution. And we wanted to find a solution to, to that we could prove easily that it works without much capital being infused at the start. So we have to weigh into it. So right now we have a very elegant algorithm that works kind of like Pandora for music that determines the right video for the right doctor's office. But back when we started, we bought TVs and DVD players at Walmart. We put some content that was public domain online on these screens that we knew we had physicians look through the content to make sure that it was reliable, good quality content. But we completely hacked the minimum viable product and put it out in the marketplace and asked doctors what the thought of the idea. We said, hey, you know, we're 
starting out, we're going to keep improving in the library of videos. Don't pay attention just to that. But do your patients want information in the waiting room? Do they learn anything from it? Do they ask you better questions because of the media they just consumed in the waiting room? Are they more engaged in their health care and their health outcomes? And we really wanted to test that what we thought is a marketplace is truly a marketplace ready for a solution. And we did that in a very base level, minimum viable product way. We did have some great advisors. We were around the university infrastructure and we had advisors who had either run companies or new people who were running companies and had made some introductions. And so we absolutely leveraged those relationships, their advice and experiences, and their perspective. You know, one thing that I talk a lot about is now there's a lot of entrepreneurial groups and a lot of entrepreneurial resources, and that's great. There's no reason not to utilize and leverage all of those resources that help you build a business. Back when we started, at least in the Midwest, entrepreneurship was not in vogue. And we had some great perspective from lots of people who were very willing to help us. What we didn't have is someone who had walked in our shoes. And so we had to figure a lot of the things doing it the wrong way to know it was the wrong way before we figured out the right way of doing things. And that's and that greediness or that experience of making mistakes and not being afraid to fail still stays with us. And there are big decisions that we make in our business and not being afraid to lose everything and not being scared of the repercussions allows us the courage to make very difficult choices sometimes. So I really want to ask you about competition because you guys were not first to market with with this general idea. Anyone who's walked into a doctor's office and has seen Dr. Gupta up on the uh, the TV that's running and they're running ads and they're running news stories and things like that, you know, this has been around for a little while. So what did you guys bring to the market that was so unique and how are you differentiating yourself from other like products that were out there? Sure. You know, there are two ways that we differentiate it. And it was, again, very personal to us when we started. Um, The idea is not new. Point of care communication, which is generally what this arena is called, has existed way before we were born. Um, You know, and especially the companies that you're referring, doing the video communication as well. What we brought to it was really understanding the audience. What we found from talking to the physicians is that they didn't know what was running on the TV. Their patients were being entertained and they were ha- they had some good content, but their patients weren't learning about the condition they were there in the doctor's office for that particular day. So what we started was very targeted channels. So in the diabetes care office, you have content about diabetes care. In a rheumatology office, you have information about how to live better with rheumatoid arthritis. And that was the first layer of customization that we were able to do back in 2006. And now, like I mentioned, our customization is down to the level where, just like Pandora, our algorithm knows the demographic of each patient. Northeast parts of the country, southwest parts of the country, their lifestyle is not the same. Their dietary regimes are not the same. And so we understand for each person, for each population, what is most relevant and deliver to them videos that really speak to that person. What we've seen with mass communication, with marketing in general, with media, while the resources, while the distribution is mass, it's very important to customize to each person and resonate with your audience. And gone are the days where a bulletin board on the highway can address a need for an entire town. We now have 
such unique needs for each person, and it's important to understand what those are and address those. So having a service-first attitude was very important to us, and that's one thing that we brought to the industry, why this was really about the patients. This was really about the doctors. It was really about what they needed and how can we really serve the need instead of, well, we think this is best for you and we're going to go do this for you. And so that was one part of it. And the second part of it was technology. A lot of the other companies were using either fax lines, DVDs, and that's how we got started. But it was important for us to truly serve to also continue to innovate from a technology standpoint. And we are now at a point where our technology is working like a YouTube on the tablets or like Pandora on the, the screens in the waiting area. And of course, the EMR systems integrate with our cell phones and emails. So it was very important for us to stay innovative and continue to serve new products to the market and not stagnate with one thing that we started with because we started very, very narrowly focused. We started just with diabetes doctors, just providing content in the waiting area. It's over the past few years that we've really understood all the different ways that media is now being consumed and stay ahead of that curve or stay with the curve in healthcare, I should say, because it's hard in healthcare to stay ahead of the curve. So I want to ask you about your business model. Can you explain to our listeners exactly how your company makes money? Sure. So it's very similar to any other business uh, media property where we have content and editorial teams and we have advertising during commercial breaks. And the advertising, the sponsor messages are from companies that have relevant solutions for the condition that the patient is there for. It could be health foods, it could be gym memberships, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, anything that helps that person live better with the solution that they are offering. After your first phase of going into the physicians and sort of giving them a pilot program and saying, hey, try this out, what do you think, getting feedback and continuing to evolve your product, how did you go about acquiring more physicians' offices to participate in? You know, it was a really interesting chicken and egg question for us because we are in a two-sided market. We do have advertisers and we do have physician offices. For advertisers, they want the biggest distribution possible. And for physician offices, to be able to install in more physician offices, we needed the advertising dollars in our kind of their dollars in our bank account to buy the equipment. And so because we are bootstrapped, we did not raise money externally. And because we are a cash-intensive product business where we needed resources to actually add each new office, it was a matter of balancing both sides of the market. And I think for two-sided markets, it's important to understand that bridge and what is that critical mass at which one side will be interested in the other side. So for us, we were expanding doctor's offices through mostly conferences that were targeted to that particular condition care because just like our media reaches patients at the right time and place where they're open to learning about their condition, we wanted to reach physicians with our technology at a time where they're out of their office in a conference looking for new solutions and how to better treat their patients and open to learning about services like ours. So we really first expanded through conferences where we could have a conversation with the physician without 18 patients waiting outside and they're being crushed for their time. And then we built an entire sales team in-house that calls doctors' offices to educate them on the services we're providing, which are absolutely free for the doctors' offices. And 
usually, once they understand the value of this to the patient, they're open to giving this a try. How do you measure the results? Like, you know, you're, you're telling this physician, this is great. This is mass communication on a targeted level in a particular customized arena. People get to see it this way, that way. How are you actually measuring results? How are you measuring whether what you are producing through this media is actually effective? Sure, that's a great question, and we are very focused on, we do take ownership over outcomes and not just delivering the media, but are we actually making a change in, in, in a meaningful way? And we survey our patients as well as our physicians, so we do third-party research where there are intercept studies for patients that are leaving the doctor's offices, and they answer questions like, whether they talk to the doctor about something around lifestyle, around nutrition and exercise that they otherwise would not have asked about. Have they learned something they're gonna implement in their lives now that they've learned about it? So we do ask patients when they're leaving kind of what they've learned that day from the media they've consumed in the waiting area and the exam area. And we also ask physicians, are you seeing patients more engaged with their health condition? Are you seeing people ask you questions about how to eat better. And you know, let me take a quick step back and kind of preface this. We have our audiences, you know, that are wearing Fitbits, that are tracking their steps on their cell phones, that have apps downloaded for carb counting, calorie counting. But we also have a very, very large portion of our population that's not on that extreme of being in charge of their health, that doesn't know where to begin on making small changes to the diet that helps them manage cholesterol better, that doesn't know that eating certain vegetables and fruits can increase their A1C levels or decrease their A1C levels. And so the audience that we educate are the ones that don't have resources as readily accessible as I would be living in Chicago with a, a smartphone at my fingertips. And so we do serve a very wide audience. And I wanted to put that in perspective as well, because we talk a lot about innovation and wearable health and where that's going. But we also have a lot of people in our entire patient population that still don't have smartphones. They're still using flip phones. And so how do you really serve education and media to such a wide variety of audience that's consuming media in different formats, in different bite sizes, in different um, types of stories. In certain areas, we've seen stories from athletes and entertainment. People work really well. In other areas, we've seen people who are just like that person resonate more with that person. So really understanding audience is so important and measuring outcomes is so important that we do survey regularly both physicians as well as patients. That's great. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And you can, by doing that, you can really continue to show the value to the physicians and to the advertisers. Absolutely. And continue to improve our service. Every time we get feedback, that's the only way we know what we're doing right, but also opportunities for us to continue to improve every day. So Ever since you began, your team has been growing and growing and growing. You now has, have 65 people who are part of your team. What has your leadership style been like? How have you actually kind of wrapped your arms around all of these team members and made sure that everyone's on board for the common good and implementing the way you know that, that you want the company to implement? So what is your leadership style as your company grows? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that's evolved quite a bit over the years. When we started the company, we were 20 years old. And we had a team of people that were not 
the Facebook hackers and coders driven with caffeine to code all day into a beautiful product. We have account managers. We have network health specialists. We have logistics managers. And so our, we are a very brick-and-mortar business in a lot of ways. And for us to have the diversity of perspectives, the diversity of team was really important. And this is something that we talk about all the ways that we did things wrong before we learn all the ways to do things or some of the ways to do things right, and we're still learning more every day. But we as leaders lead from our heart. We had a mission. Starting this company was very personal to us. And we thought because of how much heart we put into it, people around us will see that and it'll become contagious and they'll want to work as hard as us and do all the things in the same ways. And we soon discovered that was not the case. We had a team that was doing a good job, but that's what it was to them. It was a job. And it was really important to us to be surrounded by people who felt as passionately about the mission of educating people the way we did. Because innovation has to be owned by every person that touches it because you can't have innovation always come from one person or one team. Innovation is knowing your market, knowing the problems in the market, and knowing how to come up with a solution for that. And so we wiped out our original team. And as grateful as we are to the early contributions they made, we didn't see us expanding our business with a team that thought of their job as a job. And so in 2009, we took a step back and thought through why is it that we don't have a team that we can delegate decision-making to, a team that comes up with innovative ideas and creative ideas for improving things? And we realized that we had never done a good job communicating what's important to us. As co-founders, we knew that we had worked with each other for many years. We knew we aligned on our values, our vision, and, our, and had very complementary work styles. We had never communicated in an interview process to potential hires what our expectations are of them, what the culture is, what makes people excited about context media. And now we've learned to do that much better, and we've learned to identify people who are really could be very good people and could be very good contributors in many environments, but are they passionate about this particular mission? Are they passionate about this particular company? And do they see themselves here for the long haul, or is this a job to them? So we're very focused now on making sure that we're communicating clearly the expectations of context media, which do change very rapidly, but we do have expectations of our team members, but also what we give back to our team members. And we have a commitment back to all of our teams to provide them an opportunity to matter, an opportunity to grow, and an opportunity to belong. And I think those are so important for most of us these days. To we, There used to be a time where we looked at different organizations for each of those needs. But more and more, the workplace is becoming a place where you want to matter, you want to contribute, you want the work to have meaning, you want to belong, you want it to feel family or friends or people who care about you as a person, not just the work that you're doing, and to grow. Each of us has an innate desire to want new challenges and be learning new things. And if we can provide our team all of those in one place, we're now coming up on five-year anniversary for our team members, several of them. And that feels really good to finally build a team that people really own as their own family. And it's not just about coming to work, doing your work, and leaving. It's really about having fun doing that work and having 
fun doing meaningful work. And um, we joke around at work here, thank God it's Monday, TGIM. And, and that really speaks to the culture that we've been able to build. But it starts with knowing what matters to you as founders, as leaders, being able to communicate that to potential hires, and then making sure you are recruiting people who align with those. It's not always easy. It takes a lot longer to find the right person. But when you have the right people, it makes a world of a difference. And they bring so much, so many of their own flavors to culture that it's worth the investment of time in the team. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think that's a beautiful point. Sharana, can you give us a story about a big mistake that you've made in building your company? Like, you know, just some time when you just really messed up and what lesson you learned from it and how you got back up from it? Sure. You know, one I just talked about was the culture and how we rebuilt our entire team. Another time that I can speak about is sort of a product evolution. And when we started, I mentioned we started with a very basic product evolved that quickly into a digital sign-in solution that allows us to deliver messages in a lot of ways. And then we got caught up in the whole health app mode. We were like, well, this is great. You know, people have smartphones now and iPhones were prevalent at the time and we can build an app that people can download and they can track how much they're exercising and they can track what they're eating, what medications they're supposed to take and how regularly they're complying. And all this information can be emailed to the doctor. The doctor can comment on it. This is great. Why just build communication in the doctor's office? Let's build communication outside. But we got so carried away that we forgot the basics. We forgot to listen to the market. And we realized that our audience is not exactly the same audience that's using smartphones. And the statistics now show there's like 1.3 cell phones per person on average. And our audience was still on flip phones, on landlines. And we needed to really listen to the market and make sure that we're aligned with it and aligned with our mission and not getting carried away with what's cool and sexy, but really stick to what makes most sense for our audience. And that's something that Thankfully, just before we were signing the contract for the company that would build the app, we, through a survey that we ran in the marketplace, learned that text messaging was a more powerful way for us to deliver information to our patients, and our product evolved into a text message mobile product. At the time, instead of building an app, that would have had very low acceptance and use rates. So you are very involved and integrated into the entrepreneurial and the business community in the Chicago area. And on top of that, on top of actually being a business owner, you are an angel investor. Can you tell us why you decided to become an angel investor and what have been your biggest challenges and some of the best parts about being an investor? Sure. So for us, I had talked a little bit about the support system that we had when we started Context Media and we had amazing advisors. One thing we missed at the time was people who had been operators of business, of entrepreneurial businesses like ours. And we really wished we had that perspective to say, how would you make this hiring decision or how would you make this operational decision? And so early in our company, we decided to spend time with other first-time entrepreneurs, helping guide them through mistakes we made so they could learn from ours instead of making it themselves. And two years ago, we decided that spending time with them is a great investment, but we also wanted to support them in launching their businesses. Most businesses don't need a lot of capital once they've got their footing. The need for capital is most dire at the starting point of a business. And most companies fail because they can't find someone who gets it, who sees that vision, 
who understands the operations part of it, the nitty-gritty of running a business. And because we had been on that side of it, we thought that we could help other entrepreneurs with that same passion as ours that really wanted to solve problems in a meaningful way, that had the grittiness to make a business work. We, in fact, don't look at a business plan because that changes, that evolves. It's really about the entrepreneurs and the market need that they're solving. And that's when we decided to put together a personal fund, my co-founder and I, Jumpstart Ventures, to help first-time entrepreneurs, especially in health technology, education technology, and media technology, get started with their business ideas. And we made about 24 investments. What's great about it is, you know, we started thinking we're going to help other entrepreneurs. And interestingly, we ended up learning so much more from the experience than we thought. Other entrepreneurs, the way they're thinking about things, helps us stay very focused and stay very young and hungry in our own business and learn new perspectives and new ways of doing things, whether it's how are we interviewing a candidate or what agency we're going to assign our website rebuild to. We have now resources in so many entrepreneurs that we learn from every day while helping them go through some of the initial phases of starting the business. So it's been an amazing mutual learning experience for all of our entrepreneurs and us. Um, and, you know, we strongly believe in peer learning. Yes, absolutely, people who've been there, done that, really helps. But the, especially as entrepreneurs, having a peer perspective goes a really long way in knowing that you're not alone because it is hard. There are days where you don't know why you want to keep going. There are days where you don't know the answers. There are days you just lost a big advertising deal or a healthcare system or a candidate you really wanted. And there are days where your best friends don't understand why you just had such a bad day. And having other peer entrepreneurs and having this support network goes such a long way in knowing that this journey is difficult for everyone, but everyone's in it together. I couldn't agree with you more on that. You know, my husband and I run an entrepreneurs organization in the Tampa Bay area, and it's a, it's a peer group. It's a peer group of 300 plus business owners here. And I get to see every single day how much it makes a difference for them to sort of be able to plug into a family of other business owners who really get it, you know, who, who get what that's all about and to be able to sort of, you know, uh, we had a member one time describe it as they get to lock shields together, you know, and they get to sort of be in this journey together. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I absolutely agree with you that it's really important for, for people really building a business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like you said it really well, just having a family of supporters where you can really openly discuss the challenges. And I think as an entrepreneur, usually we have a very optimistic outlook on things and it's hard to admit that we don't have an answer. It's hard to admit that we have a problem and it's hard to admit it publicly. And having that family that you can trust and that you can turn to really helps get those early days of building a business, make them more focused and insightful and meaningful. So what advice would you give to any person out there who's looking to raise capital for their business? Know why you want to do it. It's interesting to ask when we hear people that come up with a solution, but they don't know why they're the best people to solve that problem or why they're inspired to leave their job and pursue that idea. And I think going through that introspective phase and knowing why you want to do what you want to do is really important because there will be days where you'll question why you started with this idea or why you pursued a certain um, avenue in life. And it's very important to have the why answered 
first and not get stuck into it a few months, a few years into it. What books have had a really profound effect on how you actually run and lead your company? So we actually have a book club at work, and we read couple of books a year as a team that we all learn from. And the last two books that we read really made a big impact on all of us. The last book we read was Keith Ferrazzi's Who's Got Your Back? And it talks about building meaningful relationships with vulnerability and authenticity and a feedback mechanism. So that book has had great effect on our team and our communication. And the book we read before that was Tony Shea's book about building Zappos. And because we are such a service-oriented culture, understanding where that passion for serving comes from and how do you ignite and keep that going was very helpful for us. How are you actually spending your time in your business now? Not Actually, not only in your business, but how are you spending your time within your business? What's your role there? And then what else do you do? <laughs> so within our business, my role changes from time to time based on which teams need my particular skill sets. And so I do oversee, I have historically overseen sales and marketing. That's one area that I've contributed to historically. And of course, media, my training and my background is media. I really enjoy being so close to our product and understanding the impact our product has on the audience and get feedback from it and keep evolving that. And right now, one of my biggest focuses is growing our team and making sure that the team that's here feels fulfilled, feels like they have new challenges and growth opportunities, and that they're truly contributing in a meaningful way while adding new team members to our company and welcoming them to the family and identifying talent that really fits in. I'm a foodie, and the way I describe looking for talent is we're preparing a beautiful dish here, and you need lots and lots of ingredients. Each ingredient has a unique flavor, but they all need to gel well together to produce one dish. And that's how we think about it. We're one mission, one team, one company. And we're looking to add all those unique flavors that still merge well with what we already have while contributing what they bring to the table. So that's a majority of my time. And when I'm recruiting, I'm recruiting all the time. I've handed business cards in retail shops. I've handed business cards in restaurants and elevators, um, at conferences. So we're looking for just phenomenal people to join our team. So that, that's a big part of it. Of course, supporting the entrepreneurs that we're investing in and advising them through challenges that they're facing. We are very, um, you know, we trust our entrepreneurs and we trust that they know when to reach out to us to ask for help, not because things are going well, but we're here to help them when things are not going so well. Um, and then being involved in the Chicagoland community and the Midwest region has recently become a lot more has built more of an ecosystem for startups and being able to help spur that growth and that momentum gives me a lot of drive to keep doing what I'm doing, but also feels very rewarding to be able to inspire others to pursue their dreams by sharing our stories of hurdles, passions, and challenges along the way. I was going to ask you what keeps you fired up, but I think I just got the answer there. <laughs> I think that was pretty evident. I really want to bring this interview to a close by asking you, what is your vision for Context Media? Our vision for Context Media is to be the world's largest health information company that helps people improve their health outcomes. So our vision is very big picture in the sense of being 
biggest health information company, but the impact, the success of the company we, we measure by the impact we're able to make on each person's life. And so we have a 10,000 feet way of thinking about it, and then, of course, a very, very in-the-trenches way of thinking about it, that is there a life that's better because of information that they had the right time and right place, and if so, we're fulfilling our mission. And what advice would you give to any of our listeners who really want to be able to bring a message and education to a large mass audience? Understanding the marketplace, it's so important to listen to them, but there's a difference between listening to what they think the solution is versus what they think the problem is. And sometimes people think they know what the problem is and what the solution should be, but it's important to, again, get down to the why. Why do you want this solution? Why do you want this feature? Why do you want this product? And diagnosing what the true problem is helps spur ideas and businesses and features, products, whatever you have, to truly address that actual need. And when there is a problem solution fit, that's when the joy of entrepreneurship is worth the pains of the journey. Shrada, I really want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights into your companies and to the companies that you um, have an impact on. It's been a true pleasure. I've really, really, uh, really appreciate it. And I've learned a heck of a lot. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for giving me the forum. And I hope that, you know, if, if someone out there feels that they can pursue a dream and pursue an idea without being afraid to fail, I think what you're doing is so, so powerful in spreading these messages to everyone. So I don't know about you, but after my conversation with Shraddha, I was completely lit up. And I mean that in the sense that, holy cow, I was totally on fire. That girl knows so much. I was so impressed by her and just really took so much from our conversation and have since been applying it in my business. So I hope you got something too. To see the full show notes, go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash 20. And don't forget to get your free gift from me. Any audio that you want, your very first audiobook is totally free. Just go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash give it to me. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you listening. Go tell a friend and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.